1 Peter 2, verses 11 to 25. Hear the word of the Lord. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. What credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our Rock and Redeemer. Amen. I want to read you a wanted poster. A first century wanted poster. Wanted. Christians. Anyone having information about those belonging to the dangerous superstition known as Christianity is to report to the authorities without delay. This is an insidious movement and must be stopped. Christians are charged with the following. 1. Cannibalism. 2. Disruption of business. 3. Gross immorality, including incest. 4. Anti-family actions. 5. Poverty. 6. Atheism. 7. Introduction of novelties. 8. Lack of patriotism. 9. Antisocial behavior. And ten, causing natural disasters. Now, this is not a real wanted poster. Uh, This is something that somebody put together, but actually it's accurate because Christians were accused of all of these things and more. Cannibalism, how is that? Well, somebody got wind of the fact that they celebrated a meal in which they ate body and drank blood Disruption of business, we see that in the book of Acts, where the idol business really took a crash when people became Christians. They stopped buying idols. Gross immorality, they heard Christians who were married to each other referring to each other as brother and sister. Anti-family actions, well, that took place. Families were divided as some came to faith and others didn't. Poverty, they just weren't that concerned about riches. Atheism, they didn't believe in the, the official approved gods. Introduction of novelties, the Romans hadn't heard of these things before, the resurrection from the dead. 
lack of patriotism because they claimed allegiance to another empire and not to the Roman Empire above all things. Antisocial behavior, well, they wouldn't participate in the, the pagan activities that were social activities, causing natural disasters. Now, that one was a stretch. But whatever bad happened, they would turn to the Christians. One Christian writer named Tertullian, he wrote sort of uh, sarcastically, he said, if the Tiber River rises so high it floods the walls, or the Nile River so low it doesn't flood the fields, if the earth opens or the heavens don't, if there's famine, if there's plague, instantly the howl goes up, the Christians to the lion. And that's the environment in which these early Christians were living. That's the context to which Peter was writing, and that's why he wrote to them time and time again throughout this letter about how they should behave, how they should live in a hostile environment when everybody was looking at them and trying to come up with a reason to accuse them. And he goes on in this section by stating in general how they should live, and then he begins to apply it to certain situations. The general situations are, uh, the general description uh, is in verses 11 and 12. We looked at this the last time we were in First Peter, but we look at it again because it's something of a pivot text between what we saw before and now hear what comes after. He says, beloved, and then he tells them, tells them to avoid certain things and to practice certain things. So what to avoid? He says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So first of all, to avoid. What to avoid? Self-destructive, unrestrained bodily passions. He said, these destroy you. And remember, your exiles. Remember, your sojourners. Remember, everybody is looking at you. So abstain from these things, even if everyone else runs along in them. That's the negative side, what to avoid. And then the positive side is, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This sounds very much like what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount. He said to his disciples, he said, he said, let your, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good deeds and glorify God who is in heaven. Now this is a little mysterious here. It says, glorify God on the day of visitation. The day of visitation in the Old Testament could have been a day of judgment. And if that's the idea here, the idea is they're going to get theirs. And they'll be forced to glorify God against their will on the day of judgment when God comes to judge them. But that doesn't quite fit because you don't see that in Scripture. People glorifying God against their will. And so if this is glorifying God according to their will, joyfully, it's talking not about a day of visitation of judgment, but a day of visitation of mercy. It's saying so when they are visited by God in mercy, even as you have been visited by God in mercy, that they will, along with you, glorify God. So what it's saying, I think, is saying that they will be converted, that they too will join with you even after they have spent their lives criticizing you and looking for something to say against you, that they will be compelled by your honorable lifestyle to glorify God and to submit to Him as well. And then, he goes on and he applies this general principle. Oh, another general principle. Look at verse 16. Live as people who are free. 
people who are free. But then he says what not to do. It's the same structure here. What not to do, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So once again, what not to do, don't use your freedom as Christians to, to practice evil, but rather living as servants. And actually the word here is stronger than servants. It's slaves. He says living as slaves of God. So that's the general principle that we should live as slaves to God and avoiding self-destructive habits. Now, he applies these principles to three situations. He applies them to government, how we should approach government, how we should approach labor situations, and particularly the question of forced labor, unjust labor situations. Uh, So the government, 13 to 17, and then forced labor, 18 to 20. And then next week, we didn't have time to fit it all in this week, but next week he'll be talking about marriage situations. Now, why these three? Well, these three were very common. Of course, everybody was in a relationship with government. Everybody was in a relationship, a work sort of relationship, a labor relationship. And almost everybody, almost all of the adults were in a marriage relationship as well. So these were situations, the most common situations. And they also tended to be unjust situations. There there was a lot of injustice that was practiced by the government. There was injustice in the labor situations. And there was much injustice in the current marriage situations as well. And so he applies uh, the general principles to these situations. How do we behave even if we're not in ideal situations or even in terrible situations? How do we behave so that people might see our good works, our honorable lifestyle, and glorify God on the day he visits them in mercy? So first of all, uh, 13 to 17, submit to, as it says here, and this word be subject is repeated. You'll see it in verse 13, then you'll see it in verse 18, and then you'll see it again in verse 1 of chapter 3, and then you'll see it implied, we'll see it next week, in verse 7 of chapter 3 as well, applying to husbands. Now, uh, be subject. He says, be subject to the Lord's sake, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution. This word institution is a little curious because it says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human creature or every human creation. And that sounds a little odd to us, how to be subject to every creature. But when he goes on and talks about what kinds of creatures he's talking about, he talks about the emperor as supreme or governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise for those who do good. So what kind of creatures is he talking about here? He's talking about creatures that are put in authority, either maximum authority or a lesser authority in the government structure. So the, 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 um, the translation is a good one, every human institution, but I think Peter is doing something subtle here by calling these people creatures. He's bringing them down a peg. Because in the Roman emperor empire situation, the Roman emperor was always treated as what? as a a god or a semi-god. And he's subtly saying something here. Honor these people. Be subject to these people. But remember, what are they? They're creatures. They're creatures that have been placed in certain positions of authority, and we should honor them, we should respect them, but remember that they are creatures as well. And we'll see how that plays out as we move along here. By the way, there is a... Peter's not writing this to tell us, give us a class on government. 
but he gives a, a very simple, short explanation of the basic duty of government. What is government about? And it's in verse 14. Governors are sent to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So here's the basic function of government. It is to promote justice. It is to promote justice for all. Now, um, by being model citizens, what Christians will do is silence the foolish criticism of those who don't know what they're talking about. Verse 15, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Why were they accusing Christians of cannibalism? Because they were ignorant. They didn't understand. Why were they accusing Christians of gross immorality? It was ignorance. They didn't understand. And what did the Christians need to do to silence that? They needed to live out their lives in such a way that people concluded, we didn't know what we were talking about. And that's the idea, that we silence the ignorance of foolish people as they criticize that which they don't know. Then, in verse 17, he says, Honor everyone, and then he ramps it up. That's everyone, that's general, everyone. Love the brotherhood, and here's he talking about a greater responsibility that we have one for another uh, in the Christian church. So not only honor, but he he gives us a, a higher responsibility, which is to love one another. And then he takes it up from there, doesn't he? He says, fear God. Fear, reverence God. Don't reverence the emperor uh, as he he requires of his subjects. Don't need to do that. You should not do that. Fear God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and then he puts the emperor last. And what does he say about the emperor? What should we do? We should honor him, but he puts him in the class with whom? Everyone. So he puts, you see what he's doing here? It's, it's subtle, but he's putting the emperor in the same class as everyone. So honor everyone, oh yeah, including the creature who is called the emperor. He's not denigrating him, he's saying honor him, but he's also recognizing who he is and who he isn't. We could extend this if it's talking about every human creation, every human institution, every creature that God has placed in authority. We could think about school. We could think about the family. We could think about business structures. We could think about sports clubs. We could think about civic associations. Whatever context we find ourselves in, how should Christians distinguish ourselves? Uh, as those who are always kind of trying to cut corners, break rules... Uh, get the most we can out of it, not uh, concerned about others? No, he's saying, whatever situation, whatever human institution you find yourself in, uh, avoid, avoid going with the flow uh, of immorality, and rather be a, such a model member, a model member of whatever institution that is, that people are compelled to glorify God because what they see in you. Now, that one might be hard, right? Uh, When we're not happy with our government, when we're not happy with whoever might be in authority at this time or that time, uh, that might be hard uh, to do. But now we get to something that was even harder. He says in verse 18, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. This word servants is interesting because it's not what we might expect to find here. If you look at verse 16, he called us servants of God, but he used the stronger word, slaves of God. And here, this word is not the same word. It's not the word for slaves. 
it's the word for household servants. Now, household servants could be either field hands that were doing back-breaking manual labor, which is what we usually think about as, as, as slaves, but they also could be professionals or tradespeople. They could be physicians. A household might have a, a household servant that was a household physician or might have household teachers for their young. Uh, they might be tradespeople or even professionals. And so, in some cases, they actually got paid something for their labor. So, it is legitimate for us to look at these instructions and apply them to that difficult boss or that uh, difficult client or that supplier or whatever it might be, that board of directors. We can, we can extend the application of what he's saying here. But at the same time, we really need to recognize that he's talking about slavery. He's talking about slavery here. These people were not free. And um, with up to one-third of the Roman population, the population of the Roman Empire, up to one-third of the population consisted of slaves. There were, of course, many Christians that found themselves as these household servants, as these slaves. Now, some people look at the New Testament and they criticize it and they say, why didn't the New Testament speak against slavery? And that is an unfair question, really. Because it's saying to people who did not have a voice that they should have used their voice. They're saying, why didn't you use the, vo- you use the voice to speak up against something? They didn't have a voice. It was the Roman Empire. It wasn't the Roman democracy There was no voice. We talk about Roman citizens, but they were really more like Roman subjects. They had no voice to speak up. Uh, The only options they had were to rebel, as sometimes the slaves did, and there were slave revolts, the last of which ended in 71 B.C., and ended up with 6,000 crucified slaves. Those are the ones who weren't slaughtered in battle. Uh, other thousands were slaughtered in battle. So that was, if you wanted to speak up against slavery and do something against slavery, that was the option. It was a suicidal option. And the idea of the abolition of slavery was an idea that had not been thought of yet. So to, to criticize the New Testament writers for not using a voice that they didn't have uh, and that they didn't raise a question that hadn't been raised is very unfair. However, I want you to see something. Oh, by the way, if you have a voice, use it by all means. If you have a voice to speak up against oppression, as we do, then use it by all means. If you have resources to combat oppression in our day and unjust situations, then by all means, use those resources to do it. But don't criticize those who didn't have that voice and didn't have those options. I want you to see something, though. Another, another subtle thing that Peter did here that was subversive to the institution of slavery. In verse 18, he did this. He said, servants, household servants. In other words, he addressed them as people. This was radical. Because there were household codes in his day. Household codes that said how slaves should act. But it never spoke to them. It never treated them as people. It never treated them as responsible agents. 
It simply talked about what slaves should do. It was instructions to masters about how their slaves should behave. But here Peter, he referred to the slaves addressing them. He treated them as people. As people. So, notice what he did. He didn't say, let's bring down the emperor. But he called him a creature. And he didn't say, let's foment a slave revolt. But he called slaves people. And it was centuries later. But when these principles work themselves out, eventually, in the West, that some of these unjust institutions crumbled. When the emperor was seen to be a creature, and when slaves were seen to be as people, the principles that that Peter is, is subtly introducing here eventually work themselves out to the abolition of some of these unjust situations. But... Going back to the text, what were Peter's instructions? Amazingly, he says, be subject. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, even to the unjust ones. Even to the unjust ones. So what were the options? Slave revolt, that was the suicidal option. Or being a slave, but being a a bad-humored slave and and, and not serving very well and constantly criticizing and constantly complaining. Or, here's the Christian option. No, do what your master tells you to do and do it with all respect, even if that master is unkind, even if that master is perverse. And he says the reason we should do this, he says in verse 19, He says, this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Then he asked the question, if you sin and are beaten for it, is that a big deal? Is that something to boast about? Is that some credit to you if you you break laws or break rules and you get punished for it? No, of course not. There's no boast in that. There's no grace in that. But he says, if you do good, if you do good and suffer for it and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now, he says twice, this is a gracious thing. Literally, he says, this is a grace. This is a grace in the sight of God. If you are mistreated and you endure and you go on living out your Christian life in the most honorable manner possible and you endure the unjust suffering, That is a grace. In other words, that is a gift from God. Paul said this to the Philippians. He said, not only has it been granted to you to believe in Christ, but guess what? You've also been given the gift of suffering for His name's sake. Peter. Peter knew what he was talking about. Peter was hauled in before the authorities. Peter was beaten by the authorities and sent out and said, do not speak any longer in the name of Christ. And the apostles and the disciples went out from the presence of the authorities rejoicing because they had been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. How is that possible? Well, how is it possible? It's a gift. That's what Peter says twice here. How does any human being react that way? What's the normal reaction? We all know the normal reaction, don't we? 
somebody cuts us off in traffic and we're indignant about the great injustice that we've suffered and we're angry and we want to get back. Even the, the slightest slights, we're ready to respond in, in defense of our, our dignity. And Peter's talking about grave affronts, great injustices. How does anybody respond that way? And the answer is, the only way to respond that way is if we receive that response as a gift from God. And this is so contrary to our normal reaction that we must have the the highest motivation to do this. And in fact, we do. And that's what Peter says to us in verses 21 and following. He says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. So we might, reading this, say, this is not realistic. This is not how human beings respond. This is not how I respond to injustice against my person. And no human being could respond like this. And Peter says, well, actually, there is a human being who responded just like this. Christ suffered for you. And He did this leaving you an example. And then in the following verses, Peter quoted or referred to Isaiah 53 eight times. And we read Isaiah 53 earlier in our service. And when we Christians read Isaiah 53, we're amazed and we say, how is it that Isaiah 53, centuries before Christ, that Isaiah could write so specifically about Christ? How do we know that? Well, Peter's the one who made the connection for us. He saw in Isaiah 53 what Christ had done for us. And what had He done? Look at verse 22. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in His mouth. Verse 23. When He was reviled, when He was insulted, He did not revile in return. Verse 23 again. When He suffered, He did not threaten those who were causing His suffering, even though He had the power to execute vengeance against them. But rather, what did He do? He continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. And now the explanation. And this is one of the clearest explanations for why Christ died. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. It sounds a little unusual on the tree, doesn't it? But this is an echo from Deuteronomy. Where in Deuteronomy it says, Cursed is anyone who is hung on the tree. And here, Peter is saying very clearly that Christ bore our sins, was cursed for our sins on that cursed tree that we call the cross. And the reason for that is that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds, we have been healed. And in our lives, what else has happened if we are believers in Christ? It says in verse 25, and this is a good reminder, by the way, Peter ends up by saying, you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And so this has a twofold message for us, and that is, 
You entrust yourself to God. He will take care of you. He's the one who oversees you. He's the one that guards your souls. So whatever might happen here, whatever might happen to your body, there is one who will take care of you. But it's also a reminder about what we were, isn't it? What were we like in the past? He says, we were the ones who were straying. And God intervened in our lives to bring us back. So as we look at those who are treating us unjustly, we can remember how we were and the mercy that God had on us to bring us back. And so what does Peter do here? One of the clearest, most concise descriptions of the the work of Christ for us, that He died for us, that He died in our place, that He took our sin on Himself. But then He goes on and He says, but not only did He die for us, He suffered in order to give us an example of how to live as Christians. Verse 21, For to you, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. I wrote up a new wanted poster based on what Peter writes in this section. Wanted. Christians. Looking for women and men, girls and boys who believe in Christ and are willing to live out their faith in a hostile environment, including doing the following things. Avoiding self-destructive habits. Living indisputably honorable lives. Fearing God, not humans. Respecting government officials. Bearing up in unfair work situations. When insulted, not insulting in return. When abused, not threatening. Always entrusting, entrusting themselves to God. Following in Christ's footsteps by bearing up under unjust suffering. And always trusting the one who gave his life for them. Wanted some Christians like that. Do you think we can find any of those around here? Let's pray. Oh God, we look at this calling that you gave the early Christians and you've given us as well. And we say, who is sufficient? And we answer that Christ is sufficient because He did all this for us and left us His example that we might follow in His footsteps. Our God, we recognize that this is not how we normally respond. I am quick to respond in anger, self-defensiveness to the slightest insult to my person. And I recognize that if I am to respond like this, it must be a gift from You. And I pray for myself and I pray for all of us that you would grant us that gift to live as Christians, even in unjust and unfair situations, or maybe I should say especially in unjust and unfair situations, that our light might shine before others, that they may see our good behavior, honorable behavior, and glorify you on that day when you visit them in mercy even as you visited us in mercy. And we pray this in the name of Christ, who bore our sins in His own body on that cursed tree. Amen.